The question of belonging, though, if you go back to it, I think I belong in a lot of places, which is, I think that's how I take comfort in, in knowing that I don't. I think I'm attracted to people who don't look like they belong because I know what that feels like. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I am delighted to welcome my dear friend and sister, Paula. A note about the term sister, brother, auntie, and uncle, you will hear me refer to my close friends, people I love as sisters or brothers. In many Asian cultures, calling someone older than you, sister, brother, or auntie, uncle is a form of respect. They are terms of endearment. Amongst friends, someone even a year older is referred to as older sister, Tatie or older brother, Daino in Cantonese, and those who are younger are known as little sister, Xiaomei, or little brother, Didi. This episode is intimate and emotional. Paula shared her story of immigrating from a small mining town in Peru to Canada. We talked about our experiences with belonging, the difference between belonging and fitting in. I especially value our discussion on being intentional when making friends, which is also a reflection on how to build community. Paula has more than 20 years of leadership experience in higher education. She is a leader and leads big teams. She is an ever-evolving human who loves books, letter writing, and baked goods. Who doesn't love baked goods? This episode is dedicated to Julie Jackson, a woman and dear friend who always lets you know you are loved. She left us too soon. Welcome to Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie Podcast. Your host, Patricia Peterson, has conversations with BIPOC folks about life, shares wisdom, and discusses their experience with topics like growing up in an immigrant family, racism, and the sense of belonging. In this podcast, we give voice to people of color and learn more about their lives. So join your Chinese auntie as she has compelling conversations with fascinating people. Without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into this episode. Hello, Paula. Hello, Patricia. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The first question is, so who are you? How do you identify yourself? Okay. It's a pretty loaded question. I find the who are you question a really fun one. Um, I don't know. I think that in life, there's some things that just happen randomly. Um, And you get what you get and you don't get upset is the way it works. So I was born in a little town, a mining town on the coast of Peru. And to me, that really informs who I am. My parents are from a very large city, but that's where it happens to be that they were working at the time, that my dad was working at the time. So who am I? I was born in the country of Peru. When I was three and a half, my parents left and they took me and my younger sister and we came to Canada. And so I've grown up in Canada. I don't speak with a Spanish accent, which is confusing to people. And my parents are of mixed descent as well. The who am I question is always really quite interesting to me because sometimes I struggle with when people say, what is home? I, I, I have two children. I'm a mom. I'm a wife to someone who's also a first-generation Canadian, but whose parents are German and Danish. My kids are mixed. And they are 17 and 7. And so I think that in, informs a lot of who I am. I work. I've always worked full time. I work in higher education. Love it. I love working in an environment with people who are older than me, people who are younger than me. It gives me hope to work in post-secondary studies with young people. And I know that I work in a very privileged space. So yeah, those are a lot of things of who I am. I'm a daughter. My parents are still alive and they both live near me. So I'm very lucky this way. I have nieces and nephews and aunt. I'm an auntie, all those things. So great. No, you have Chinese ancestry, right? Correct. Who is, is a mom or dad 
Oh, is it oh. both? <laughs> yes. Oh, so okay. my my paternal grandfather is originally from China, and he immigrated or fled. He fled China when he was a young man to uh, Peru. And you'll have to forgive me. I often get this incorrect, but it's either when the communists, when there was the changeover, but he had already been to Peru as a younger man and knew where he was headed. And much like other, like the diaspora, get on a boat and some folks stopped off in Vancouver, others in San Francisco. I have friends who are Chinese Guatemalan, Chinese Mexican. Mm -hmm. And then my grandfather made it all the way to Lima. And that's where he remained, got his Spanish name, but spoke Cantonese fluently and lived in the Chinatown of Lima, Peru. So there is a strong Chinese community. My grandmother, so the woman he married, was also mixed, mostly Chinese. So if you met her, my grandmother, she looks Asian, but she was born in Peru to father who was also a Chinese immigrant and a mother who was more Peruvian. And Peruvians are mixed to begin with anyways. They're a combination yeah. of Andean and Spanish. My dad thinks that there's probably some Chinese in his lineage as well. It's hard to identify, but if you meet him, he looks more like a Spanish Peruvian. He has a Spanish last name, but he's darker skinned, darker haired, includes some Andean um, heritage as well. Yeah, I've met your mom. I don't mm -hmm. think I've met your dad. Correct. So, so when you guys came here, did grandparents come? Afterwards, we sponsored them to come later. So we came first. The story is the classic one of immigrant families, which I always think if you're going to leave with two children, where you're headed to is likely better than where you are. Mm. And that was the case in Peru. And I don't think my father has ever really regretted that decision. The government in at the time when we left in 1979 was nationalizing a lot of the mining and a lot of the uh, state natural resources. And because mm. my father was a mining engineer, he had an understanding of what that would do for his career. And they were in their 30s. My parents were in their 30s. They had mm. two little kids. And I think they applied for both Canada and the United States. I think Canada came through and then you get six months, pack up your things and arrive in a new country with very little. And we had some family in Toronto, which was good. Some mostly our Chinese family in Toronto. And they helped us. We when we arrived, they we stayed. I remember my parents left us there with them. They own a convenience store in Toronto and the Chan brothers. And they left us behind because my dad had an interview in Montreal. And it was those days where when they interviewed you, they invited you and your spouse. So my mom and dad both went to Montreal, I think, for an interview. They left my sister and I behind. I remember working in the store for a little bit and then staying with my cousins. And then well, how long? I don't remember. Maybe a couple days, two or three days. Okay. But they were family. And then when they found out my dad got the job, they helped us buy warm clothing. Because we had never oh, yeah. experienced a Canadian winter. And of course, the place we were headed to was Shefferville, Quebec. And so folks who know Quebec know that Shefferville is the last stop on the railway line north, really close to Labrador. And we, there, we were there for a full year. It was a tiny little mining town and there was snow to the roof of our house the very first winter we were there. It was crazy. And then what happens after Quebec? Where did you guys go? We went to Fort McMurray, Alberta, a much bigger oh, town. cold. And we lived there for 10 years. So I grew up in Northern Alberta from all of my elementary school years are there and my first years of junior high school. And the goal was always to move as West as possible. Everybody knew that Vancouver was beautiful and nicer weather. And when we sponsored my grandparents to come to Canada, they came, tried out Fort McMurray. My grandfather wouldn't have it. Chinese grandfather would go out in the middle of the day to smoke in his undershirt and it was below 40 degrees. And oh my so, God. Um, so they moved to Vancouver and it was great. They found a Chinese community here. My grandfather never spoke English. Hmm. He spoke Spanish and Cantonese fluently. And with that, he arrived in Vancouver, found his society in Chinatown 
rented a little apartment above one of the noodle shops and retired here and died in Vancouver. Uh, yeah. Wow. So you speak Spanish. So Spanish is actually my first language. Spanish is the language that my parents taught me when I was born or spoke to me when I was born. And for the first three and a half years of my life, fluently. But then also when we came to Canada, they also spoke to me in Spanish. It was a bit tricky because we lived in Quebec for a year. Yeah. And so my mom literally would pay our babysitter, I think, extra to speak to us in English rather than in French because my parents wanted us to learn English. And it was my grandmother, actually, my maternal grandmother, at least the way the story goes, that said to my parents, make sure the girls learn Spanish because I don't want them to not understand me. And I love that about my grandma. My parents spoke to us in Spanish at home. I remember there's a point in time, I think, when we would respond to them in Spanish. And then there's a time when it's switched and I don't know when it is. When they would speak to us in Spanish, we would start speaking to them in English. They understood. My mother was an English teacher when she was in Peru. So she spoke very strong English. My father, not so much. And yes, we... We, at one at some point now, when we're older, I find it funny because I talk to my parents in English. They talk back to me in English, but I always ask them, "Do you think in Spanish? Like, how how does the language work in your head?" So, do you speak French? Not very well. I speak no. Canadian French from growing up in the school system, <laughs> and a little bit of German from taking it in university. And I can speak. Dim sum so that I can survive. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, how does your tent to me? So we 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 go for dim sum. You can do the order. I can. I know exactly how to order what I eat. <laughs> yeah, because my Mandarin is better than my Cantonese. Like, and my mom went to Cantonese school when she was little as well. Because remember, they were growing up in the Chinatown of yes. Lima. So my grandfather sent them to Chinese school. But my mom said it's hard to pick up when you're surrounded by people who are speaking in Spanish. It's true. It's true. I know Cantonese because a part of my childhood was spent in Chinatown in Singapore. And most of the elders spoke Cantonese. That's how I picked it up. But now that I'm not surrounded by a lot of people who speak Cantonese, I don't remember a lot of it. How was it? I mean, from Peru, then he went to... Quebec and then went to Alberta. When you think back now, what stood out like? I think sense of belonging is constructed. I don't feel it naturally anywhere. And and, and that might sound very sad to people. I think I I um I feel it naturally in groups of people, but I, I won't ever go to a place and feel like, oh, this is it where where I naturally belong. I, when I think about it now, when I look back, and I, I wasn't this compassionate before, believe me, this is only, I think, being in your late 40s and having the wisdom of time. But my mother also probably never felt like she belonged in, in Lima either. Growing up, they were the minority. There's a very small percentage of Chinese people, even though they have their own Chinatown. And definitely, I think you then look and feel like the people around you in that space, but they are not the majority of of people. Those look more like my dad. And I think from my father, when I, I, and we recently traveled together, which was wonderful. I spent two weeks together in Lima and I watched my dad now as a, a 75 year old wander around in Lima there is a, a definite sense of belonging. He really does belong there. The people around him look like him, other than the fact that he's got a lot of Western influence now. He grew up there. This is his space. And he looks like the majority of people there, whereas my mom doesn't. And so that's really interesting to me. And in Canada, I always felt like I've needed to figure out the rules of you know, one place in this space. And I think as I, because I'm one, the elder, I'm the elder sister. I think I, of my family, I started speaking English the most fluently as a young person. And I watched my parents experience racism. And I think that compels you to then 
figure out what the rules are. And for me, it felt like I was trying to figure out the rules of how to be in Canada and belong in Canada or fly under the radar so that you didn't look different or didn't do things differently such that you would then invoke racism. And then I would felt compelled to, t- to teach my parents how to do that. And so Did I, that I, work? Is your parents how to do that? I think they just, it becomes this funny relationship where if you want to make a reservation to a restaurant, you're the one who phones. I, I also remember, yes. I remember being in the food court when I was little with my grandparents. So my Chinese grandfather and my grandmother also looks more Chinese than Peruvian, but speaks fluently in Spanish. And I remember being at the food court with them and I was little and they were looking after us, but I still had to go and ask for extra napkins and yeah. because they didn't speak English um, yeah. yet. My grandfather actually never spoke English. And so they would send you to go collect the things in your fluent language because you knew how to ask for things, right? So it's subtle. I experienced it more explicitly with my father because he was never formally educated in English. Mm. He only he spent a year in the United States, actually. So he spent a high school year as an exchange student in a really small town in the U.S. But his grammar skills in English aren't very strong. And he and he was an engineer. So really, he spoke the language of math and engineering. But every so often, his company would ask him to write a bio for their website or something. I don't even know if they had, they didn't have the internet, but they'd they'd ask him to write something. And, and so he would always send it to me to proofread first. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So he would write it in English and then I would go through and I would rewrite. I knew exactly what he wanted to say. Yeah. Um, The written portion of it was fine. What I was correcting was the fact that when I read my father's writing, he is thinking in Spanish. Yeah. And it's lovely. There's no punctuation. It's one gigantic sentence. But, and this is what I love about the written word. If you ever read 100 Years of Solitude or Marquez or all of the magical realism of of the Spanish language and you read it in translation, everybody thinks it's just fantastical. But really, that's the way Hispanic storytelling. It's quite longer. There's not a lot of punctuation sometimes. And that's the way my dad thinks. So I had him go in there and rephrase it. Do you, I always find this interesting for people who speak two or three different languages. Do you count in Spanish or do you count in English? I count in English. You count in English. English. It's only when I am in a Spanish speaking environment that my brain switches for a little bit. Mm. Um, and I have to be there for a good week to two weeks for, yeah, yeah to be able to just be in that language. Um, and yeah, oh, I'm just curious because I've asked my sister this, I've asked a lot of close friends this. Like I called in Mandarin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even though my Mandarin now, I wouldn't consider it my stronger language, but I still count in Mandarin. No. Did you learn English growing up? I did because in Singapore by the 70s, maybe the late 60s, the school system was set up that must learn two languages. But I remember my parents spoke Mandarin. My grandmother spoke our dialect. And I still, I till my parents' death, I conversed with them in Mandarin. Yeah. I have to switch my brain in order to talk to my parents in Spanish. I can do it. And but do you even notice you're doing it? Or is it an automatic thing? And I, it's intentional. It's intentional, right? It's intentional. But remember, I was four and a half. Yeah. And we were living in a, I was going to preschool in French and learning English from my parents, whose first language wasn't English because they didn't want it. So it, or watching TV in English. My parents were speaking in Spanish. My sister actually didn't speak until she was, I think, five years old. My mom was convinced it was because there were so many languages happening. She was in kindergarten and they were concerned about her because she wasn't actually speaking. Did you ever ask her why? They, I, I think, one, she's really just very shy and very quiet to begin with. But two, I think there's just this sort of, that's how she processed it, this sort of sense of shock, what to do. And so she didn't 
we didn't hear her talk in any of the languages. <laughs> I won't die. Are you, I, I wouldn't be surprised right? there's so many languages going on. I don't know if I ever told you this. So my husband didn't speak until he was five. Probably. They thought he was, yes, yeah, they exactly. thought he was um, not going to speak ever. Yes. And when you ask him, he, I didn't have anything to say. That's exactly it. But now he's, he talks all the time, right? So it's a really good story in my family that my, at one point, my, the school called my mother and said, oh, we really were not aware that Elizabeth was allergic to celery. And my mom said something like, she's not allergic to celery. Oh, but they, they, she told us that she was allergic to celery. And I was like, well, this is great. That means she's speaking in school. <laughs> She doesn't like celery, and so she's told them she's allergic to it. Oh, that's awesome. In kindergarten, so we, my mom was like, oh, great. This means she's actually talking. Thank goodness. It's amazing how, as children, we adapt to our environment. But yeah, the question of belonging, though, I, if you go back to it, I think I belong in a lot of places, which is, I think that's how I take comfort in and knowing that I don't, I think I'm attracted to people who don't look like they belong because I know what that feels like. Someone once said that I always befriend the misfits and the folks that are a little bit quirky. And wait, I, is that why we're friends? Possibly. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm just teasing you. But truthfully, I think it's because to me, that's what's so interesting about, about human beings. I, I don't, I'm not a super huge fan of conformity. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, I think it's challenging because I never really felt I fit in. And so I figure I might as well just fit in everywhere by not fitting in. And that's okay. And I wish more people would do that sometimes because I think it would reduce a lot of the societal pressures they have to be concerned about fitting in, which I think is different than belonging. You're right. Fitting in is different than belonging. I fitting think belonging. is... Because fitting in is like, I'm going to kind of mold myself to the group so that I quote unquote bit along, which I think is very, I find it difficult to do now as I get older. But I did what you did growing up. And when I immigrated here, in order to belong, I changed who. I was the way I was spoke, the clothes I wore. I find it's still difficult to find places that I feel that I belong. Because I don't know whether you found this, even going back to Peru. When I go back to Singapore, I don't feel like I belong. I, right. I stand out because my accent is slightly different. No, it's, you... it's the same for me. Uh, not only because I'm mixed, so people are not 100% sure. If I am Peruvian, because I'm only part Peruvian, and there are lots of mixed people in Peru anyway. So th there are lots of people that look like me or mm -hmm. part Chinese, part Peruvian. But the moment I start speaking, so interesting, a lot of it is about language, is they will know that I have an English accent. I'm also taller. That was also just, again, that's random, right? I'm taller that, and that's just random. I'm taller than Chinese people should be, taller than Hispanic people should be. I was wandering around trying to figure out. They have really good leather shoes. I realized that I cannot, very few, they top out at a size 40. And I have a size 41 shoe size. And so there's some size 40 shoes I probably wear, but not. It, it doesn't compute. So you're right. I To me, I always say that I'm going home in air quotes because it really isn't. And I didn't grow up there. I don't know the trends or the, you're not following yeah. the language yeah. changes. I think languages evolve. Yeah. You, you leave a country and the language continues to evolve without you. Yeah. And then you go back and you still speak the language that your parents spoke, which wasn't, that has changed in 30 years. And so yeah. the clothing and just what people are doing in that space. So I think it, you're right. I think it is tricky. I don't think there is a location. There's a, at my age now, I say my age, but I'm almost 50. Like 
I, I've come to the realization in the last year that belonging isn't a location or a place anymore. I think it's with the people, with your people, right? And it's, but it's so interesting that you brought up the shoes thing because in Singapore, I'm only a size eight to be fair, eight and a half. But if I ever try and go shopping in Singapore, forget it. Forget it. Clothes wise, I don't fit either. And it's, it, it just makes you stand out, right? It's, I'm curious when you went with your dad this last trip. Could you tell, like, how did you know that you're like, oh, he feels like he's cool? Was there something about his mannerism, the way he was talking, interacting with people? So this is, I think, the crux of your question about belonging. My sense in Canada has always been, at least growing up, that if I followed the rules, I could fit in. Mm. If I could fit in, then I could feel safe. So mm-hmm. to me, I think a lot of the sense of belonging is around safety. And do you feel safe being yourself where yeah. you are? Exactly. And so you're right. I think I do get a sense of belonging with certain people. I feel a sense of belonging when I'm with you because I feel very safe to be myself. Yes. Because you know that there's not, no one's going to bring up, oh, that, or will mispronounce your name or mention something that just doesn't sit quite well with you because of, of, of the color of your skin or the way, or the fact that you don't look like everybody else in the room. And so I think that what I watched with both my parents, actually, my dad and my mom, um, which was really lovely, is now they don't. My mother never feels a sense of safety in Lima because it's a big, crazy city. I don't even think people from Lima feel a sense of safety in terms of personal safety because it is, it's just, it's not a, it's not a super safe place physically, right? Uh, There's always the threat of someone stealing your bag. There's been protests. There's political instability, but psychological safety, you could see it with my parents because their friendship groups are there and that is really lovely and so when I went to Peru I actually arrived like two and a half weeks after my parents had arrived and it's because they had so many social obligations my father was (laughs) celebrating my father was celebrating his 50th anniversary from graduating from the university the engineering university in Peru and that's also another interesting long struggle my dad spent 10 years in Canada trying to get his professional designation mm. as an engineer in Canada. And so watching that struggle when you're a kid and knowing that, again, that sort of sense of professional belonging and knowing how important that is in Peru for my dad, who was not from a household of means, made it, his education was how you shifted socioeconomic status. And yeah. for him, he comes from very humble roots. And being strong at academics, to be able to arrive at the engineering school, place well, to then graduate with this cohort of people, gentlemen, really. I did ask him, and we were looking at the pictures. There was one woman in his graduating class for engineering. She was pretty amazing. But they celebrated their 50th reunion and celebrations and dinners and lunches and that sense of, you just say, oh, I'm going to go. I have a, I'm going to go see my friends or this other friend is coming in from this town. Mm. So those friendships are pretty incredible. And the same with my mother. She's quite lucky. She went to a school where her graduating class, and, and I think this is an anomaly even for people from Lima. They've been together, this group of women, since they were in kindergarten, some of them. And they get to, they still have a reunion. And so when she comes to town, they make a point of getting oh, together. Yeah. And so my daughter and I went to one of these, and there's about 14 of them now that are left. And it's just beautiful. They know each other from when they were kids, yeah. right? And so there, that sense of appreciation for each other and belonging with each other, even though there's their gossipy and quirky on their own and they, they gossip about each other before they, the, the next one arrives. It's just, it's really quite lovely. And when we were there, sure. I was speaking to the daughter of one of the other women who was hosting one of their 
lunches. And I said to her, I'm like, is this typical even for you? She's no, she's even I don't hang out with the people I graduated from high school. And she's these ladies, she said, before the pandemic, they get together once a month. Right. As well, I don't know. Yeah. And now my mom is here and not in Lima, but I think if she was there, she would also be there once a month. And then now they try to get together over Zoom as well. But ooh. And when they get together, they have a raffle and they raffle something off. And that's how they collect money to donate back to their school. Yeah. They do a retreat and go to, they do like a girl's spa weekend or something. Mostly they just hang out and eat, right? But it is really, it's quite lovely. And I think that's where that sense of belonging and affordability exists. And that's so community though, right? Yeah. Which I think you and I also have had this talk before in one of our hangouts is that the community that is lacking, that what your mom has is, and I've had this talk with this topic, conversation with different people, clients and friends too, is that I don't know what the difference is. Some people say because Vancouver is too expensive, everybody is trying to make money, so nobody's have time for each other. Some people say that our city is just not built for community like that. Because look at all the condominiums, it's all locked. You need a key, a port to get in. But and is that kind of community that I crave that is really hard to find? Because in where I grew up in Singapore, I know my high school friends have, they have reunions like this. What do you think is the difference? Is it generation? I don't know. I think there's a level of intentionality too. I think, and so I don't, and again, and a sense of safety. And, and I don't know what feeds into that. I don't feel like I can pinpoint it. Yeah. But if you can feel safe being yourself, and you can find those people with whom you feel comfortable being who you are and sharing who you are and being vulnerable with them. Mm-hmm. I think that you create a strong community. So the way I'm thinking about it right now, and perhaps I'm not one of those people who has maybe, I, I believe in deep and close friendships, right? Yeah, yeah, me too. And I've been lucky. And when I think about it too, interestingly enough, my deepest and closest friendships are with people who come from cultures where the collective or where communities are important. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about just this past year and what I missed during the pandemic, because I think that really did. And now we are struggling to bring those back because we went into this mode of three years of staying apart from each other. So I think we are in a different time. But for us, at least for my husband and I, our friends, Jitesh and Poonam, I've always felt like I can be myself around them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we had dinner together, I think it's December 4th. But again, it's intentionality. One person has to say, okay, we're going to have, we're going to go to the Chinese restaurant. Okay, let's do it. And then we have to pick a date and then we all go. But once we get there, everybody's, oh yeah, we should do this more often. It's just intentionality. And I think once we get there, we have such good laughs and, you know, you feel like, their kids have grown up with my kids when they come over. And this is the thing is I miss having people at my house where they come over and there's no, we're just like, come dressed as you want to be. I, yeah, I'm with you in my baby Yoda t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> but like I welcomed you into my home and I didn't really feel like it. So this is the interesting thing is I didn't really feel a need to put on someone yeah. else to be with you. Mm-hmm. Right? Wish. I totally agree and I really appreciate that because it's the same like when I see you are usually in my sweatshirts and jeans or sweatpants depending whether I walk the dog or not. Well, I've seen you. So I really like that school you feel the safest. Yeah. And we had another couple come over recently just like earlier this week where again, you don't have to make plans. You just text them like, hey, we have all this extra cheese and crackers. Why don't you just come over? And of course, in the past, it was a little bit harder because we all had young kids. But I'll tell you the funny thing about this one friend. And when I realized that I was like, oh, I really, and I am very intentional where I think of somebody and I'm like, oh, I really want to be their friend. Right. And then I work at it. Yeah. So this, this woman I met because her son and my son were born at around the same time, ran into each other at a, at a one of those 
baby groups. And both of us, I could tell, were really uncomfortable. And I'm like, I'm trying to force myself to make friends with other people because their children are my age. Really, this isn't working. And so she and I just decided, we're like, let's go for walks together. So we would go for walks together. Then I invited her over to my house. And and of course, her, her parents are from Hong Kong. And so again, it's just this sort of comfortability of, so, and I guess it could be personality. She comes over to my house. And again, when you have kids, everything's a disaster. But I can't remember. She did something where she started saying, she'd say, oh, I'll get you a glass of water. She started going through my cupboard and just opening. And I was like, I'm a bit terrified, right? Because you think, oh my goodness, this is only the second time you've been here. You're going to think that my house is a complete mess or you, you feel this sense of you're going to be judged, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, I was like, ah, oh, that was just such a lovely icebreaker. <laughs> no judgment. You feel like you belong with this person because they're just, they're like looking for stuff, right? And they just feel comfortable enough in your kitchen. The intentionality thing is so real because I think, especially making friends as an adult, I don't know whether you see this with your daughter who's younger. Was it easier to make friends as a kid? I guess I find making friends in your 30s and 40s, you really have to put in the effort to connect, to go, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? It is. And you and I, we, you know my background. I lost two very good friends in 2018 and 2019. No, 2020. 2020, Which, yeah. Yeah, so. Sorry, fall of 2019 and then in 2020. And they were... Friends who I had had really deep friendships with. Mm. And not only that, they were my, and they were about my age, but they were also not only, they were friends with whom I had a really good, long, and this is the thing with me. I appreciate depth of time, length of time with my friends. That's how I stick to the same people for a long time. And, and they were both sort of the extroverts in my life. They were the ones who like made the plans or invited you to things. And that was what made it so easy for me because they were so intentional about the relationships, the two of them. And when I lost them, I was not only devastated, but there was this moment of like panic where I was like, well, my God, like I'm in my 40s. I'm never going to make new friends. Like, how am I ever going to replace them? And not to think of them as replacements, but I'm like... To me, it was just, I actually started going through the list in my head. I'm like, this can't be happening to me this early because how, I, how am I going to make a deep friendship that I've, like, I've just had these friends now for 20 years. Yeah. And other than being completely grief, grief stricken and, and it's taken me some time to realize that, that, and my husband said this to me because one of my friends was also somebody I worked with and, and we really close and I really admired his style of leadership and his extroversion and just his charisma. Um, and Mike, my husband said, there was one day where I was just like crying. I just like, I just, I can't do this anymore. And he said, that's because it's your turn. He said, now you're going to have to be that leader that you just relied on him to be. Mm. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to take a lot of work. But it is work, right? And it's, yeah. it's good work. And I realize I can't do it all the time because I'm not an extrovert the way that he was. And likewise with my friend Julie, I'm not going to organize really big parties. But every so often I realize that what was so wonderful about her was she would call me sometime randomly while she was driving. Okay. Um, so she would be on a drive to the Justice Institute because she was taking a course. So that's like a long. And so she would call me on like the just the speakerphone and, and most times as usual because being in the day and age that we are people don't answer their phones i always have mine on silent and she just leave a voicemail she's just driving in the ji just calling to check in on you have a chat i haven't talked to you in a while just want to see how you're doing and then she'd tell me some random story and then that would log up and so i'd pick up the voicemail and then i'd realize that it was time to call her back, to call her back and so there was this lovely sense of intentionality with friendships. And I realize that it's a bit of a skill. I think you have to do it if you're married. I think you have to do it in friendships. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's how you find your people. The ones who do it back are incredible. Yes. Yeah. The, and I do want to talk to you about Julie because she was such a good friend for you. But I, what stood out? For me, as when I witnessed what you and 
Danielle, our other close friend, what both of you did for Julie. That was like, I was like, you both showed up in the last year of her life. And sometimes I think if we only have one or two people like that in our life, we are blessed. And you and I have talked about this, right? We actually haven't done it because we've been busy and stuff, but it's like to give each other a set of keys if anything happened. And you and I have talked about this because I went away in December that, oh, if I needed somebody to look after Bailey, you would, Bailey is the dog for the listeners, that you would take Bailey. to And to have someone who you can call at 2 a.m. if things goes horribly wrong. If we had one or two people, for most of us, that is, you are so grateful for that. And I, when I see what you did for Julie, that is what friendship is about. That is what sisterhood is about. And I don't maybe want to talk more about that, but I am curious, how, how and where did you learn that? Or was that kind of, because I, we, I know you're a leader too, was that just ingrained? Did you grow up with it? Or was it an intention when Julie got sick, you were like, okay, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah. And so for your listeners, Julie is our friend who checked herself into the emergency room at the age of, I think, 47 at the time because she was experiencing really bad headaches. I had seen her the week before. She had just come back from a trip to India, so she thought she might have some sort of bug or something. Pretty funny because the week before, she arrived, came over to the house, dropped by because she needed some duct tape. And this is the kind of relationship we had, and it was intentional, and I was really grateful for it. She was my closest neighbor. And so you had mentioned earlier about Vancouver and where people live. We live maybe a five-minute drive from each other, but technically we were the closest neighbors to as friends. And so it was, we had this really, other than just being really good friends, and we had been friends since I met her in 1999. And when I met her, again, it was very intentional. She was a little bit older than me. Uh, so to me, it was like having this older sister. She was a mentor to me when I was an intern at the legislature, at the BC legislature, and that's how we met. And so I just decided I really wanted her to be my friend. And so I very intentionally sought after her and tried to put myself into places where she would be and hoped to get invited to her parties because she was quite extroverted and liked to have cocktail parties, which people of my age and our early 20s did not do. And so she seemed really sophisticated and, and she's, she was one of a kind. And so I would do all of these things to try to intentionally be her friend. And I thought it was funny because at one point I actually wrote her a letter and I said to her, did you know that I was intentionally trying to be your friend? And she just thought that was hilarious. And she always seemed so confident. I think this is a thing is that you believe things about people, right? Like yeah. you believe them to be so confident and you believe to them to, to be different because you see them in a different light. And Julie had her own internal struggles. She struggled with her mental health. She struggled with her weight. Things that I didn't see um, or care about, but I know that they plagued her. And as my closest neighbor, she drove over one day because she was looking for duct tape. And, and we got lucky. It was, I think it was Good Friday. And I had just pulled into the, the carport at our house. And my daughter was having a bit of a meltdown. She was really young. And Julie was parked at the front of our house. And thankfully, she decided to come round the back to find me just in case because she had heard some noise and there I was carrying this little girl who was having a total meltdown screaming because she was overtired and and I walked into the house with Julie she helped open the door for me and I was carrying this little kid and we went up to the living room and in the end my daughter Nadia fell asleep on me as I was talking to Julie. And so I was sitting there with this child on top of me and we were having this great conversation. She told but I was actually here for duct tape. But she was telling me about how badly her head hurt and how she wasn't um, feeling very well. And then that weekend she got really sick and the following week checked herself into the ER. And then that's when they found out she had a very large tumor in her brain. 
when she was at the ER, it's like you said, she called our friend Danielle and said, could you please look after my cat? Because she was single. And so Danielle went to her, to the ER, picked up her keys, went to make sure her cat was fed, and then sent me a text and said, Julie's in the ER. And I went there right away. Likewise, the thought she can't be alone. Her, she has a wonderful sister. Her sister just happens to live in Chilliwack. So we all knew that her family was not near to her and she's a single gal, very self-sufficient. And then at that point, just at her most vulnerable. You asked if this is just like instinct. I have actually, interestingly enough, because I think about her often and we're still really good friends. I met a one of my really close friends who lives in the UK. I met her when I was on a year of exchange abroad. And when I met her, realized that she had a, at the time, I think it was like a form of leukemia and she too was struggling with cancer. And we were in university together. And likewise, she was this wonderful human being that I just wanted to be friends with. And then I later found out that she was actually taking oral chemotherapy, I think, while we were at university. So she would faint. And so I felt pissed to be nearby her. And we worked on a performance together. We were stage managing a performance. She would just, there were times she would just faint and collapse. And uh, she had to make a decision about perhaps not being in school while she was getting treatment for cancer. But with Julie, it was the same. I just, there's this sort of belief that I have that in the end, life is a lot more simple than we make it out to be. Yes. Yeah. And all you really need is to feel loved, especially at times. Right. Mm -hmm. I also did some, I think it also just happened coincidentally that in 2016, when I had my daughter, I did my organizational coaching certificate, which is helpful to me with my job because I lead team and manage things. (laughs) <laughs> and, but it was, it's the, probably the best training I've ever had for listening and for holding space in a non-judgmental way. I remember you telling me that when you were going through it. Yeah. It's just yeah. wonderful. You don't realize that it's a skill. And, and so this is actually, I think an important, could we talk about this, about our Asian moms, right? Yeah. You know, I grew up with an Asian mom who you who never says I love you or not because she yeah. doesn't love you, but just because for me, that's just, that's not the way she was brought up. Yeah. Who suffered her own trauma. So when you'd come home with 95% on your exam, the first thing she'd say is, where'd the other 5% go? Yeah. Like, oh, I just, I'm not good enough. Right. But my Chinese mom, when you are sick, will cook you something and leave it on your doorstep and say, or will send you messages and her advice always seems like it's like criticism, but really I believe now that it, like if you assume it to be advice, that's a better way to go. But it, <laughs> it's, it's true. Important. It's also important though then to understand the limits of my expectations of her, right? Mm-hmm. So naturally, if I am going to be in a deep, dark place where I need someone to tell me that they love me and then they're going to encourage me, she's not going to be the person I go to. Exactly. Good <laughs> It's a, that's a good decision because there needs to be other people in your life who you depend on for those sorts of things. And because listening is a, is a skill and not everyone is trained. So your parents are not really trained. Well, well, but it's such a big realization, especially for those of us who, who are influenced by the Western, whatever you want to call it, thoughts, process or whatever that a lot of white people tell their children they love them. And then you and I come from a family where love is shown by making you porridge, dropping off food at your doorstep. It's such a big realization in your life. Okay, I need to change my expectations of how and what I can expect from my parents because they didn't have the language of that growing up. And I also love what you say, because one of my realizations too is that you need to surround yourself with people that fulfill different things you need. Right. Because not one person can give you everything. I actually do. And I'm not qualified to say this, but I actually sometimes think this is why marriages fail. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, hey, as a therapist who see couples, I... Yeah. You're I, more qualified to say that than I <laughs> 
Uh, I don't know. I think I'm a tiny bit more qualified, but I do think that I'm not, I'm a true believer that, and I say this to couples that I see, I don't think your spouse should be the one that you tell everything to. You can discuss things, but you don't expect your spouse to be able to hold space for you 100% of the time because that's a very unrealistic expectation. But I think Disney threw on us all these Disney princess movies, all those romance novels, is that you fulfill me. You are my everything. And then we grow with these expectations that my partner should be able to do all this for us. And then you get into a relationship like, wait, that's not how it works. And then in friendship, that's not how it works either, right? No, it's true. And right. so, I don't know. I, I think um, I was in Julie's life at the right time and I did some training that allowed me to be a better space holder than maybe mm-hmm. I would have been. But I also realized that I drew on what I remembered from having done the same thing in my 20s for another dear friend who is still alive and well and we still keep in touch. And she and I always say that our friendship, uh, because she lives in England, is one that always just picks up where it left off. There's yeah. a sense of comfortability with both of us. We've just always been like that. But yeah, with Julie, there was just this space holding. It also just, I think I, and you're like this as well. And I think when you're able to deconstruct what society creates for you, it's a little bit easier to have patience and to handle being around someone who, and for Julie, this was really the case. Her brain was being attacked. It's like being with children in a way, but also just like this sort of sense of entering into a world that is unlike. So I would enter into the hospital room and just listen to whatever Julie was talking about. And we just go with that. Oh, yes. And it's it's okay to do that. I think we're going to need to rely on that more as our parents age. I think that's the other thing that we forget sometimes is that your brain is not the same forever. <laughs> and I think that sometimes you're right, like Western or even just like capitalist society are so fixated on a very particular time in your life that is considered the norm. And we've lost that sense of being in communities where we are with elders, where we're watching them age, where we realize that the things are changing constantly and mm. how we adapt to those is really being about adapting to people in different stages of their lives. Yeah. Before I ask you the last question, what do you miss most about Julie? Or what do you love most about Julie? She had this sort of infectious joie de vivre, right? Mm. Whether, and this like twinkle in her eye, I don't think I've ever seen. It was a little bit like schemish. Wit and sarcasm and cleverness, but this just beautiful way of enjoying life and good food and being really good to your friends. Actually, that's, I think, something that she is the person who always sent you a gift if you had some sort of a milestone. She celebrated my birthday by organizing things, right? It's this beautiful way of living out loud. And I think that the only way to honor that is by trying to do the same, maybe not as much because you just can't keep up with her. So all the energy in the world, but likewise, right? Like remembering people's birthdays, making them feel special on that day, making them feel loved. I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to live. Yeah. I remember her with everything you said, I agree with you. And I also remember her being, she has that, she has that like, mischievous quality mm-hmm. but you trust her yeah she wouldn't like make fun of you or anything but there's that fun mischievous side but it's also lovely because you could get dressed up with her and we'd have all these silly parties or she would invite you to i she would organize the best sort of let's go to this fancy dinner and get all dressed up and then on the flip side you go to her apartment your sweatpants and sit around and eat cookies and just be yourself. And yeah. it, I think that that was her at her most vulnerable when she was in the hospital. And to me, that was 
us being our most authentic and real selves. And I think that's what friendship and that's what love is really all about is about. And I think you really need to be able to accept love. Mm. And to me, that's what Julie did for me. So even when she was at her most vulnerable and in the hospital, the fact that she kept wanting to see me and that she was okay around, that was a lot for me. That to me is the true sense of friendship is that you can accept being vulnerable around someone and accept their love because it comes around. Yeah. That's so good. I think Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of courage to accept help and to accept love. And I figured that's what we did in the end, right? Yeah. Uh, And yeah, I see that too with another girlfriend now as well, where if you're looking after parents and spouses and you need to be able to accept love and you won't accept love from everyone, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it really breaks down that shield, right? Um, And it makes you really vulnerable. But if a friend does that for you and accepts your love, that's just really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so many of us don't know how to ask for help. That's a lesson in learning. But also you do that with people that you trust and you feel safe with. And you you do it in little bits at a time so that you build up your capacity to be able to go, hey, this is her. I need help. So, last question for the podcast. Any advice for your younger self? Or I like to say, any advice from the Asian auntie? Yes. Asian, oh goodness. I have such a hard time with this one too because I always feel like I'm not qualified. Um, I will leave you with that if I can find it. I pulled out a quote for you because it's probably the words that I'm living by lately. I had always, so there's two things people are always like, what is it that you wish for? And one of them for me had always been wisdom. And the other one now I realize is grace. And so I found this quote and it's probably, I think, the advice that if I could give it to my younger self or to anyone's younger self, it would help. But it says, the moment you realize someone's behavior has more to do with their internal struggle than it does with you, you learn grace. And I think you also learn compassion. Uh, And so I think that's what I would give to my younger self um, (laughs) is the advice I would give. Yeah. That's how grace is born is when you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, I can be compassionate to others and to myself once I realize gracefully that this has more to do with them than it does to do. Yeah. It's, that's a great, it's so true though, because sometimes we take things personally and when we take a step back, we realize that's not, how they are behaving is not because of us. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think this allows you then to create a collection or a community around yourself where different people are there for you when you have different needs because you don't know when your friend is going to have an internal struggle or your spouse or whatever, right? So folks won't always be there for you. And I think the other part is too, maybe just realizing that sometimes you have to be there for yourself, right? That's a tricky one. But yeah, but being intentional about the communities that you create around you. And interestingly enough, that's something I learned from Julie. And she had learned it in a workshop because she had been doing trauma-informed training because she'd been working with residential school survivors as part of her job as a treaty negotiator. And so she was wanting to tell me about this workshop she had done. And really, it was about drawing rings around yourself of support mm-hmm. and realizing that there's what your support system was like when you needed them. And it was so strange because I think she told me that probably like, She'd gone through that workshop, I don't know, three or four months before she ended up in the hospital herself. But she had been really pleased with herself because she said, Paula, I've done all this work building this network for myself. Not everyone is, is close to me, but they don't all. They fulfill different needs. But she said, if someone in your inner circle is struggling, they're not going to be the person you can rely on at that time when you're struggling. So you need a couple of layers. Yeah, and I think one one of the things I learned in the last few years is 
that to have your people and when you need something, you put a text out, WhatsApp. And the expectations is to have no expectation right. of who texts back. Because it's not how I see it. It's part, one part of it is not who reply. Because it's more of me putting out there going, hey, I'm struggling. And I just want to share that I'm struggling. Whatever other teachers I want to share, that's part one. And part two, of course, we hope someone texts back, right? But right. if you text five people, I would say it's very high percentage. At least one would text back and goes, I'm sorry, you're going through this. What do you need? So it's about if you have, if you're lucky enough to have that group of people that you can just reach out, then at least you get seen, you're being heard, you're being seen for what you're struggling with. I think maybe that's true too, just as a, as a reflection, and this is just timing because I was um, in Lima in November. There's, it's, and there's so many layers to this, but when you're from countries where there isn't as much of a, it's pretty chaotic in Peru, not as much organization government-wise or socioeconomically-wise, you build the communities out of intention. You need each other yeah. to hold each other up. And it's one of my favorite things that I learned about Latin American God parentage, right? There's a religious component to it, but there was also in when communities like earlier in time where God parentage was also just about your parents seeking other friends and neighbors to become part of your community intentionally, right? So that you grew up in a village yeah. um, of people who you could be there for support. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to go back is I wanted to see my godparents and they both live in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed my time with them. And I think that, and again, it's not family members. You can be someone's family, auntie, and but they look for friends or there was a time as well historically that if you were in the farming community or whatever and there was a landlord, you would make them the godparent of your children. Because again, what you're trying to do is expand your community, but also help raise your children up by having someone of wealth be connected. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that plays out. But for me, godparentage had always been really important. My parents raised me with this idea that I had them, but I also had my aunts and I had my uncles and I had my grandmother and I had my godparents. All these people supported me, right? So my godmother will send me little WhatsApp messages and my godfather will as well. And they'll always remember my birthday. And so you do feel like you're raised with a village of support. Mm -hmm. And so I, likewise for my children, I've been very intentional about making sure that they're raised with our friends to look out for them in addition to family members because we don't have as many family here in Canada mm -hmm. as we do. Mm -hmm. If I think if we had been, we don't have as much as like those connections when you're an immigrant. And so you do that with friendships, right? Yeah. And you look for people that, that you can trust as parents because you want your kids to be raised with many different influences, but also yeah. that there's a sort of support system for them if they ever get in trouble or like they need help or they need to call for help. There's more than one adult who will come to them. This is, though, and it's so true, right? Because I was just thinking that, for example, this is not going to happen, but if Nadia gets into trouble when she was 16 and she doesn't want to call you, she can call her godmother or one of the aunties or yeah. Auntie Danielle, don't yeah. want mom or dad to know about this. Because then they don't go to a stranger and get into more trouble. There's people that they know they can always call, which is also, I talk about, in a lot of my work, in my work, I often talk about growing up in a collectivist culture and having the extended family around. Yes, we all know that sometimes the extended family isn't always a good influence because they're in your business and stuff like that. But one of my examples I always use is that, but in an extended family, if you're moving, for example, your cousins show up. Your aunties will make their children show up. There is no end if or buts. This cousin is moving, you show up. 
that cousin is getting married, you go to the church and do the vows. It's that expectation that is there that is not voiced per se because you grow up knowing that. But it's also then on the other hand that if you're in trouble, you're not alone. Right? Yes. So Yeah. And likewise, right? I have to pick up your keys because if something happens, I just want to make sure that we can get Bailey and Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think you do it because you want to make sure that your loved ones are taken care of. But then we forget that we should also do it because we are one of our loved ones and we need taken care of sometimes. And so having those intentional communities for ourselves, mm-hmm. if we're removed from the ones or as, as you get older, your godparents will get and your parents are going to leave you. And I think, yeah, that's in a way funny enough. Which And I do love working in higher education because I do work with young people. That's the other advice I guess maybe I would give is to have a spectrum of friends of different ages. I learned so much from mm. the, pe- the younger people that I work with. I really enjoy it. I know they think of me as, oh, she's got 20 years of experience in leadership and I want to get there sometime. So it's like a mentorship opportunity. And for me, I'm like, man, if my computer gets stuck, you guys are going to help me or... I don't understand how to navigate the social media stuff, but also I just, you pick up new things from people that are younger and I think it's really lovely to have friends across the spectrum of ages. Yeah, because as you get older, you realize that some of your, and then for me, I don't think I ever expected people of my own age in their late forties to leave me, I think, right? Or to, I guess you'd say to leave me, that's very self-centered, but or to lose them. And I felt like I lost them sooner than I wanted. It's, it's life, isn't it? The lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I love Paula and I love our friendship. Today's wisdom from me, Ee, your Chinese auntie, is to be intentional regarding making friends. Surround yourself with good people Find people who accept you for who you are, your quirkiness, everything. And remember, you are more than enough. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, remember to sign up for our newsletter to receive free materials and updates links in the website, patriciapeterson.ca. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you in the next episode.